The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. I had intended this evening to give you a kind of a brief overview of the chapter. Um, three more plagues that God brings on them, uh, the plague of, on the livestock and the plague of boils and the plague of hail, but I'm not going to do that, God willing, there'll be an opportunity for that kind of an overview next time, but the last uh, time that I uh, preached on Exodus, I mentioned that we were going to be talking about this matter of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, the next chance that I got, and so I want to just go right to that, even though a better order would be for me to give a kind of an overview of the plagues and to try to understand just generally what happened and then go in, uh, but I'm assuming most of you uh, have read through and know the order of the plagues and what happened, and so we'll save that for next time, God willing. I'm also almost certainly going to be going past 7 o'clock, uh, so if you uh, have somewhere you need to be, certainly feel free to slip out, um, no question about that. I'm not going to go long beyond it, but uh, I just can't do what I'm seeking to do tonight in 17 minutes. Um, so we're going to be looking this evening at the issue of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Now the issue comes up in Exodus 9 concerning the plague of hail. Uh, beginning at verse 13 of Exodus 9, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning, confront Pharaoh, and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says. Let my people go, so that they may worship me. Or this time I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. Therefore, at this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter, because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. So let's stop there. We're looking at the issue of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Now, I know that this section that I've read here this evening does not mention the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, but we know that in a great commentary on this, namely in Romans 9, Paul specifically quotes this to explain God's sovereign purposes, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and God's sovereign purpose. So we're going to be moving back and forth, as it were, between Exodus 9 and Romans chapter 9. So take a minute and turn over to Romans chapter 9. Put something here, and if you go over to Romans 9, you'll see this very same thing that I just read, quoted by the Apostle Paul. And so we have a commentary, as it were, on Exodus 9, given to us by the Apostle Paul. As Christians, we believe that anything that Paul wrote was inspired, and so he's giving us an inspired commentary. Let me tell you something, not every commentary on Exodus is inspired. Not at all. Quite the opposite, as a matter of fact. Some of them are so human-centered, they really uh, frustrate me. 
They give, they give two naturalistic explanations for the plagues. It frustrates me. For example, the plague on the livestock is directly connected to the plague of frogs, and they connect it to a kind of a, an anthrax bacillus kind of thing that happened because of the heaps of frogs. Well, the text doesn't say that at all. That's a human extrapolation. We're trying in a human way to understand. And, and they even go beyond this. This is an expositor's, expositor's Bible commentary, the EBC, saying, well, uh, that, that Israel was spared because they were upriver, upwind, or something like that. I'm thinking, why in the world do we need to imitate the unbelievers in their commentaries? I think we simply ought to accept the text as it is. But we have in Romans chapter 9 a divine commentary on this quote in Exodus 9, uh, picking up at uh, verse 14. What shall we say then? This is in Romans 9 now. What shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So here we have this issue of God's mercy, and also of God's hardening. So just put something there in Romans 9, we'll be coming back to it, uh, but there's the connection between these two texts, Exodus 9 and Romans 9. Now go back to Exodus, and let's see if we can trace out this concept or the doctrine of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It begins for us in Exodus chapter 4, verse 21. So look back there with me, and we're going to trace out this idea of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and try to understand what's happening as best we can. This is in the account um, uh, after uh, the burning bush. Uh, God speaks to Moses and urges him to go. Um, he's already gotten his calling, and this happens just after the account of the circumcision of Moses' sons, beginning at Exodus 4.21. It says, The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you power to do. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say this to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I told you, let my son go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Stop there. So you can see in this interaction or this commissioning, really, uh, from God to Moses, uh, a statement before anything has happened, before any encounter whatsoever with Pharaoh, uh, a prediction at least, if not more, a commitment or a determination on God's part that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. It's connected, it seems, with the unfolding of all of the plagues that he has in mind. Namely, he's going to harden Pharaoh's heart in order that he may multiply his signs, in order that he may show all of the uh, signs that he intends. Right up to the very end, the tenth plague, namely the plague on the firstborn. In other words, in order to guarantee the full assortment of plagues, God is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. So that's where it first comes, and it occurs, as is noted, uh, before any interaction has occurred with Pharaoh at all. It's just a statement that God makes. He's determined before anything happens, before Pharaoh has done anything, good or bad, connected with Moses and the call to let the people go. He says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. The next time you get it is in Exodus chapter 7. So turn over there, if you would, in Exodus 7, and we'll see the same thing in verses 1 through 6. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. You are to say everything I command you, and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with, the mighty acts of, with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions and my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Moses and Aaron did just as the Lord commanded them. Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 when they spoke to Pharaoh. So here we have in verse 3, Exodus 7, 3, again the same thing. A determination on God's part and a statement of what he will do. He says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And again, we get a connection with his purpose here. Though I will multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. So again, there's a sense of the connection between the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and the multiplication of all of these signs and wonders. There's also a sense in which Pharaoh's reaction is contrary to what would be expected. In other words, he says, though I multiply my signs, he will not listen. So it seems natural, it makes sense that Pharaoh at some point would have yielded, would have relented. And so he does after the 10th plague. And so the miracles are intended to have an effect. The miracles are designed to have a certain effect. But God wants to perform all of the miracles, all 10 of the plagues. And so he connects the hardening of Pharaoh's heart to the extending out of the plagues, the multiplication, so that all of these signs may be done. Now, I've noted in the study, every single sign that God does is connected in some way to Pharaoh's hardened heart. Every single one. There's not one that gets missed except the last one, the plague on the firstborn. There, there is no hardening at all because Pharaoh lets the people go. Finally, he yields. Finally, he relents. He lets the people go. So, of course, there's no hardening with that one. Either Pharaoh hardening his own heart or the Lord hardening, and neither one occurs. He lets the people go. He relents. But every single sign is connected up until that one with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. If you look at the staff into the snake, look at Exodus 7, 10 through 14. There it says, this is the first sign, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same thing by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them just as the Lord had said. So we have this account right from the beginning. And then in verse 14, connected with it, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. So that's right after the, the, uh, play, the uh, sign of the staff turning into a snake. It says in verse 13, Pharaoh's heart was hard. This is really a very key verse in my understanding. Most commentators you'll hear, and I'm going to go on to explain this more fully, will say, Pharaoh hardens his own heart first. But I'm telling you, in this first encounter, it is unclear from the Hebrew who's doing the hardening. It just says his heart is hard. It doesn't say either way who's doing the hardening. This is a very key point, and you've got to be careful about what some of these commentators are going to give you, because they very much want to say, from the beginning, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and then God kind of took over the job. And that's the very thing I am not going to teach tonight. 
If that's what you're thinking that I'm going to say, it is not what I'm teaching tonight. Okay? But I think that it, this Exodus 7.13 is a kind of a key moment here because every commentator, evangelical commentator that I read, say that he begins by hardening his own heart and then the Lord takes over the job midway through at the sixth plague and carries it on. But all it says here is that Pharaoh's heart became hard as the Lord had said. Now the second half is also key to me as well. There's a direct connection between the statement of the Lord or the, or the, uh, the pronouncement of the Lord, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and the hardening here in 713 with the, with the staff that becomes a serpent. And so I believe that the key issue here is as the Lord had said. A key statement here. And I think what we're going to run through is ultimately we're going to come to a point where we really don't see a difference between Pharaoh hardening his own heart and the Lord hardening it. It's all one of the same work. This is exactly why this particular man was ruling Egypt at this time. Because this was his nature. And God just uses his nature to accomplish his ends. In the verse that we're looking at in Exodus 9, he says, I raised you up to do this. This is what you do. It could easily have been a Pharaoh very open-minded and open-hearted to the Hebrews as was sitting on the throne in the time of Joseph. Raising him, as it were, to the second highest position in all the realm. Just as there was a, a leader uh, open to the same thing with Daniel, raising up a Hebrew to the second highest position in all the realm. Could have been that way, but God did not raise up that kind of a leader. No, he raised up this kind of man, a hardened man, a prideful, tyrannical, dictator-type man. Well, why would he want someone like that if his goal was to get the people out? Well, I'm saying that his goal was not simply to get the people out. This morning as we drove in, we go through some psalms. And, uh, and every morning, we, every Sunday morning, we read a psalm and we just talk about it as we're driving in and it prepares our heart for worship. We get ready for uh, worship by talking about these things. And so this morning we did um, Psalm 21. And there David uh, says he delights or rejoices in the strength of the Lord. So I said, is there anything we were going through? And I asked, it's a Q&A kind of format. And I, as I'm driving, I... I say, is there anything that, that the psalmist uh, says he's delighted in or that he rejoices in? And Carolyn said he, he's delighted in God's strength. So I thought about this text this evening. And it occurred to me that David is thinking about all that God has done to display his strength. Every good Jew, I think, would think about these encounters with Pharaoh. Let me ask you a question. Would God get the same glory? Would we have the same sense of of awe and wonder, if God had merely paralyzed temporarily the Egyptians and just gotten the people out and then prevented them from following until they gave up the idea. Not a single Egyptian dead, not a single plague done. He just reaches in and gets his people out and brings them into the promised land. Would he have gotten the same glory? Would we have, the same, would we have had the same sense of God's strength? Clearly not. Clearly not. And so God, in effect, wants to display his strength. He wants to put it on display. And he must have a foe worthy of that. And so Pharaoh is going to escalate ever stronger in his determination. And so we have this hardening. Now, in every single case, there is a hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We get the same thing in the Nile turned into blood in Exodus 7, 21 through 23. The fish in the Nile died. The river smelled so bad that the Egyptians could not drink its water. Blood was everywhere in Egypt. But the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. And Pharaoh's heart became hard. He would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Instead, he turned and went into his palace and did not even take this to heart. 
very much like the seed sown along the path. No understanding, no comprehension, no uh, concern whatsoever. He doesn't even take it to heart. As it were, the seed just kind of bounces as on a piece of concrete. His heart is hard and he won't listen. Secondly, the plague of frogs. Exodus 8.15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said. Again, a key verse for me, because here it clearly is stated that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. But it also connects it as the Lord had said. So there's a connection again between the statement or the decree of God and the fact that Pharaoh hardens his own heart. As I said, in the end, I don't see much difference. It's cut from the same cloth. The third plague, the plague of the gnats, in Exodus 8:19, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen. Again, just as the Lord had said. Again, the, Moses, in his writing of this account, again and again linking just as the Lord had said. A connection there. Number four, the plague of flies. This is in Exodus 8:32. But this time also Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. Uh, number five, the plague on the livestock, Exodus 9:7. Pharaoh sent men to investigate and found that not even one of the animals of the Israelites had died, yet his heart was unyielding. He would not let the people go. Uh, plague number six, the plague of boils, Exodus 9:12. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not listen to Moses and Aaron, just as the Lord had said to Moses. Again, it's a seamlessly moving from who's hardening whose heart, whether it's Pharaoh hardening his own or the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart. There's a seamless moving, just as the Lord had said, the same phrase used again and again. Number seven, the plague of hail. Exodus 9.35, so Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. Number eight, the plague of locusts. Exodus 10, one and two. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them. Do you see that? Exodus 10.1. I've hardened his heart so that I can get these plagues done. Why? That you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. All right, and then the fulfillment in Exodus 10.20. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go. And then finally, number nine, the plague of darkness, Exodus 10:27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Now I want to pause on that one just for a moment. If you look at Exodus 10:27 and look very carefully at what it says, this is at the end of the string of plagues before the plague on the firstborn. This is the last time that the statement is made in reference to the plagues of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Of course, one more time, the Lord is going to harden Pharaoh's heart. You know what that is. It's to make him go into the Red Sea in Exodus 14. We'll get to that in a minute. But this is the last time connected with the plagues because the next plague is going to work, the plague on the firstborn. I would contend that all the plagues worked for God's purpose. He wanted all of them done. They each had a purpose, every one of them. But number nine, the plague of darkness. It says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he was not willing to let them go. Here we have a direct connection between the Lord's hardening and Pharaoh's unwillingness. Do you see that? I would challenge somebody and say, does Pharaoh have free will at this moment? Does he have the ability to choose left or right, to do whatever he wants? I would think the verse is implying that he had no choice in this matter. He had to not will to let the people go. That was the purpose of the hardening. The Hebrew is very strong in this matter. It says, Ava, he was not willing. 
he did not choose, he was not consenting. But his unwillingness is directly tied to God's prior hardening of Pharaoh's heart. So clearly anyone who would advocate a completely free human will must yield at this point. Pharaoh no longer has a will in this matter. Not at all. Now what they'll do is they'll say, okay, yes, but he had a will for the first five plagues. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But all I'm saying is it's gone now. He, he must do what God intends and not let the people go because he has one more plague, the plague on the firstborn. He wants the Passover done. He wants the blood's lamb, the lamb of the blood painted over the doorposts and the lintels. He wants the whole thing done because it's such a display of what Christ has done for us. He wants it done. The tenth plague will be accomplished. And so Pharaoh's not going to say, all right, all right, I yield. Oh, what a surprise. Heaven is surprised. Oh, I was hoping to get in that plague on the firstborn. It isn't going to happen. And so God hardens Pharaoh's heart so that he may do all of the plagues that he has in mind. There's a very important pause to make here, isn't it? Because those who would advocate a complete free will in our interactions with God, that at any moment we are free to choose anything we want to do, must yield at this point in Exodus 10:27 and say Pharaoh has no will in this matter, ultimately. And yet he does. I would contend he does. He is choosing according to his nature. He's doing the very thing he wants at that moment. Namely, to not let the people go. And so there's a summary in Exodus 11.10. Take a minute and look at that. He's summarizing the entire thing. And in this case, as we've seen, a hardening connected with all of these plagues. Moses and Aaron performed all of these wonders before Pharaoh. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. Do you see? This is job accomplished now. Every one of the plagues has been done except the final one, which will be effective in letting the people go. And he connects it, the whole work, to the hardening that God does. The Lord worked all of these plagues, but, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. There would be no surprises at the first plague or the third or the fifth or seventh, but there would be nine plagues and then on the tenth he would let the people go. And then certainly on the tenth, the plague of the firstborn, there's no hardening statement here at all. In Exodus 14, verse 3 and 4, we get the final hardening statement with, uh, concerning Pharaoh in the Exodus account. And that occurs when, as you know, the, the Israelites have already left. They're pinned up against the Red Sea. Uh, Pharaoh, military genius that he is, thinks this is a moment to get back at them for all the trouble that they've caused. And so he's going to go slaughter them with his army. But the Lord has Pharaoh right where he wants him, not Pharaoh having the Israelites right where he wants them. And so he's going to pursue. And this is very interesting. Exodus 14, 3 and 4. Pharaoh will think... The Israelites are wandering around in the land in confusion, hemmed in by the desert. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. But I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army, and the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. So the Israelites did this. And then 14.8, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. So there's a kind of a summary of this, the, the evidence connected with the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Now, what does it mean, this hardening of heart? What are we talking about? Well, the word kind of implies like the beaten path into which the seed cannot penetrate. I'm thinking about that because I'm preparing sermons on the parables of Christ in Matthew 13. And you know the parable of the seed and the soils, and the first is a beaten down path, and the seed just simply cannot penetrate. It's a refusal to yield, to be submissive, to respond, or to move according to God's command. The Hebrew word is hazak. Doesn't that sound harsh? Hazak which means to be strong or hard. Take a minute and look at Exodus 6.1, and you're going to see, I think, a very fascinating thing concerning this hardness. Exodus 
Exodus 6.1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Stop there. Say, well, wait a minute. Where's the, where's the hardness there? Well, it's the same Hebrew word, the word translated mighty. Mighty. Basically, Pharaoh's heart is hard and strong. My hand is stronger. And so, in effect, you want to see my, the strength of my hand, I'm going to mount up a guy so hard that you can see a full display of how strong my hand is. And so it's the same. It's like a battle going on. And in the end, God's power is so much greater than Pharaoh's authority. And so he's mounting up an enemy worthy of his own power to a certain point because nobody's equal to God. To whom will you compare God? But the exact same Hebrew word is used here. You're going to see my strong hand just as you're seeing Pharaoh's strong heart. Again we see the same word in Exodus 10, 19, and 20. Look there for a minute. Exodus 10, 19, and 20. This is after the plague of locusts. I learned a lot about locusts this week. We'll get to that, God willing, in the future. They eat a lot. That's all I can say. They're just little grasshoppers that eat a lot and fly together. But we'll get to that. Uh, it's a terrible plague. And uh, Pharaoh has requested and that his sin be forgiven and that God be sought and prayed to and that the locusts be removed. Verse 18, Moses then leaves Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord changed the wind to a very strong hazak, a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt. So this is a strong wind, the same word that we use for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. It's a strong wind that moves. It's God's mighty hand. He can do anything he wants with locusts. He can bring them. He can move them. He can move them here, move them there. They can be here one day, they can be gone the next. They can stay for two weeks and then be gone in a moment. He can do anything he wants with locusts because he has a very strong hand. And so he sends a strong wind as a display of his strong hand. <laughs> and yet in the very next verse, what does it say? Same Hebrew word, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go. The same strength to send the wind to remove the locusts also hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he wouldn't yield. We've got more plagues to go. It's the same thing. So we're just doing a, a word study on this and trying to understand hardest. Now, let's get to the most common way of thinking about this whole hardening issue. I'll read it right out of um, Expositor's Bible Commentary, which is usually a good commentary, not always. But uh, I'll just go ahead and read it. This may sound familiar. In all, there are ten places where hardening of Pharaoh is ascribed to God. He lists them here. But it must be uh, stated just as firmly that Pharaoh hardened his own heart in another ten passages. And he lists them there. Thus the hardening was as much Pharaoh's own act as it was the work of God. No argument here. Even more significant is the fact that Pharaoh alone was the agent of the hardening in the first sign. Stop there. Where do you get that? How could you substantiate that? That Pharaoh alone was the agent of hardening in the first sign and, all, and the first five plagues. I can't support that from the text. But this is what they put. They put a key word in there, didn't they? Alone. Pharaoh acted alone. Why? Because God's hardening isn't mentioned. But God already covered all the hardening at the beginning. In Exodus 4.21, I will harden Pharaoh's heart so that I will do all the plagues that I have in mind. So why can we say, actually, I would think the text evidence would go the opposite direction. 
And what is that? Namely, that uh, God was active at all times in this process. The hardening was as much Pharaoh's own act as it was the work of God. Even more significant is the fact that Pharaoh alone was the agent of the hardening of the first sign and in all the first five plagues. Not until the sixth plague was it stated that God actually moved in and hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now, my question here is not so much whether this is an accurate way of looking at the text, but what's the motive behind this observation? What are we trying to get at? Well, I think the desire is to give the ultimate choice to people so that God is freed from any accusation of being the one who sends people to hell. God, we need to protect God. We need to protect him in his sovereignty so that he is not the ultimate agent of sending people to hell. That's my guess of why there's such an urgent need to point out that Pharaoh hardens his own heart first. But I'm going to tell you, in the end, it runs directly contrary to what Paul says in Romans 9. Directly contrary. In the end, we will see that there's a direct connection between God having mercy and God hardening. It's the same God who does both, and he does it out of the same freedom. He does it out of the same freedom. Another uh, Christian website that I found, God's desire in this situation was to show the world his mighty power. He allowed this hostile, arrogant, stubborn Pharaoh to push the situation to the extreme. He only hardened Pharaoh's heart in the direction that Pharaoh had already chosen for himself. I actually think that's all true. But I think they go too far when they say that God is not active in the hardening to begin with. Another Christian author says, Wasn't God unfair in hardening Pharaoh's heart? God was very patient with Pharaoh and gave Pharaoh plenty of opportunities to repent. And in the end, God simply gave him what he already wanted. Let me ask you a question. Would God have been unjust if he had given Pharaoh no opportunities, had hardened his heart right from the beginning, and then condemned him? Absolutely not. It's almost like God owed it to Pharaoh to give him those five chances, and then after that, then all bets are off and he can treat him a different way. I don't understand that way of thinking. It's not biblical. God didn't owe Pharaoh anything. He didn't owe him those first five chances. Well, let's look now and try to understand. Let me sum up this way of thinking that most people you find very common, even in evangelical commentators. God will not harden anyone's heart against their will, but always waits to see what they will do and merely confirms in them the hardening they have already chosen for themselves. Would you say that's a fair assessment of the kind of teaching that, uh, that you heard? In other words, we're waiting to see what man will do. And based on his reaction, then God acts. And he only hardens in the direction that people choose for themselves. Well, let's look and see Paul's commentary on Exodus 9 and see what he comes up with. Turn to Romans chapter 9 and let's try to understand what he's looking at here. At this point, I'm really kind of following a sermon that uh, John Piper preached recently. John Piper wrote his PhD dissertation on Romans chapter 9. Uh, it was published in a form of a book called The Justification of God. And uh, Romans 9, a very challenging chapter, it was not for no reason that I stopped at the end of Romans 8 when I was preaching through Romans. Romans 9 is, is, is meat. It's hard to understand. And I don't necessarily believe that every one of you who's listening to me tonight will leave this place satisfied with these explanations. I just desire that you continue to move in a biblical direction, that you might be able to accept Paul's argumentation in Romans 9 and also what Moses is clearly teaching, I think, in Exodus. Let's look and see. What Piper says basically is that there is a central mystery in Romans 9 that we must accept. The mystery is as follows. People who are hardened against God are really guilty. They have real fault. They are really, truly blameworthy. They really deserve to be judged. That's the first half. And 
God decided who would be in that condition. That's the second half. That's what Piper says is being taught in Romans chapter 9. Is he right? Well, let's look at his seven reasons for saying so. Let's try to understand what he's saying. Continuing to quote Piper, if you demand an explanation for how this can be, that God decides who is hardened and yet they have real guilt and real fault, there are pointers in the Bible, but they will not satisfy the natural fallen human mind. I don't think in the end we're going to feel satisfied necessarily by what's in here. But let's try to understand. What Piper is trying to show is that Romans 9.18 teaches an unconditional hardening. Look at Romans 9.18. It says, therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. That's a pretty parallel statement, wouldn't you think? There's mercy and there's hardening. Those are the two uh, things in this text that God is giving. All of us desire mercy. You're hungering and thirsting for mercy. God loves mercy. As a matter of fact, he commands that we should love mercy too. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to love justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. And so we should love mercy. God loves mercy and Christ loves mercy. And then the text here God is saying, up in verse 14 and 15, what shall we say then? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. What is God saying? I am free in this matter concerning showing mercy. I have the freedom to show mercy on the one I want to show mercy. The context there is God displaying his glorious face to Moses. You remember that? And God said to Moses, you can't handle it. Because if you see my full glory, you will be destroyed. But I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and you can see my kind of hindquarters as I go by, just the trailing edges of my glory. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That's what he's quoting. And so all of us who are Christians, we are hoping to see God in the face, aren't we? We want to see his glory. We want to see him face to face. You'll only get there if God shows you that mercy. And he has freedom in that matter. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will harden whom I harden. That's what he says. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now go on in verse 16. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. What does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy? Well, the very thing that he just got done saying, the fact that I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will privilege, I will exalt whom I choose to exalt. In other words, Moses, you asked a great thing, to see my glory. All right? I will do it, but not because of anything I see in you. Not because you deserve it. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. What does that statement mean? There's nothing in you. There's nothing in you that's calling out from me mercy. Frankly, quite the opposite. But I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God who has mercy. Do you see that? So it's not a matter of human desire and it's not a matter of human effort in this matter of mercy. You see what I'm saying? Go on, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So now we have the Exodus 9 quote. Why did God raise up such a hard man to be Pharaoh to begin with? And then why did he confirm his hardness again and again and again? Why? To display his power and that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Well, what's the connection that he makes then in verse 18? He says, therefore, so he's kind of culminating his argument, therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, 
And one could say, and in the same way, he hardens whom he wants to harden. Do you see the flow? Wow. Unconditional mercy and unconditional what? Hardening. That's what verse 18 is teaching. In other words, the reasons for the hardening are not ultimately found in Pharaoh. They're ultimately found in God. And what Piper says is, there's seven reasons why. First of all, that's what the words naturally mean. He hardens whomever he wills, says that his will and not our will is decisive in the hardening. To be sure, our will rebels and is hard against God. But the natural meaning of these words is that God's will is decisive beneath and behind our willing without nullifying the importance of our will. Secondly, the exact parallel with mercy shows that the act of God in hardening is as unconditional as the act of God in having mercy. They're exactly parallel. Third, this is in fact exactly what Paul infers from God's words. In verse 15 he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And then in verse 16 he draws it out to say, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. If that's what I have mercy on whom I have mercy means, then it's probably what I will harden whom I harden means. Namely, it depends not on human will or, on, or exertion, but on God who hardens. Fourth, the parallel with Jacob and Esau, which we didn't cover in, earlier in Romans 9, but it says the parallel with Jacob and Esau shows that mercy and hardening are unconditional. Paul says in verses 11 and 13, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, as it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. In other words, the context demands that Paul's, Paul address not just the love and mercy part of God's sovereignty, but also the hate and hardening part of God's sovereignty. The parallel with Jacob and Esau in verse 13 shows that the hardening and mercy are unconditional. So what is he getting at here? The fact of the matter is that we have similar statements in Exodus. Before Moses even enters Egypt and begins the encounter, he says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh. Before any uh, action on Pharaoh's part has occurred, good or bad, he states the hardening. Now, at this point, Piper did what I just did a moment ago, and that's quote a popular commentary. If I were to tell you the name of the commenter here on Romans 9, you would know him. And this is what this commentator, is usually a very good commentator, says. Neither here nor anywhere else is God said to harden anyone who had not first hardened himself. That Pharaoh hardened his heart against God and refused to humble himself is made plain in the story. So God's hardening of him was a judicial act, abandoning him to his own stubbornness. And this is what Piper writes. Let me state this calmly and firmly. That is exactly the opposite of what Romans 9.18 teaches. Do you see it? It's exactly the opposite of what verse 18 says. Now, where does Paul go after that? Well, what are you feeling? Stop and think. What are you feeling right now? You'll say, well, what? wait a minute. I mean, how could this be right? If this is the way God is, then why does he find fault with anybody? It doesn't seem right. There shouldn't even be a judgment day then. Isn't that the kind of natural connection? Well, that's the very next thing Paul brings up, verse 19. He says, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? Do you see his logic? He's arguing against his position, saying then God can't hold us accountable if his will is irresistible in this matter. Do you see that? Now, he could have cleared this whole thing up if he had just simply acted like the expositor's Bible commentary. Oh, no, wait a minute, you misunderstand. I wait to see first if Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Then I kind of kick in at the end and harden just the way Pharaoh's been hardening. Is that what he says at this point? Not at all. What does he say? He says, But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? 
does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Same lump of clay. That's kind of a key phrase, isn't it? Does the potter have the right to do this? Well, we think that the potter has a positive right. Change my heart, O God. Make it ever true. Change my heart, O God. May I be like you. What's the next phrase? You are the potter. I am the clay. Mold me and make me. This is what I pray. Did you, did you sing that earlier? Yes, I heard most of you. Did you sing that? Yes, oh Lord, you are the potter. Shape me, mold me. Does he have the power to do that? I hope so. I preached it this morning. Make a tree good and its fruit will be good. I want to be transformed. I want to be made new. Does God have the power to do that? Yes, he does. Okay, does God have more power than just that? The text says so. The potter has the power to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use. Do you understand all this? I don't fully. I really don't. I'm standing up here teaching, and I prayed at the beginning, God, guard me from error. But I do want us to go as far as the text goes. And I believe that Romans 9 goes farther than these evangelical commentators go. In the end, they make man the center and man the king, God waits to see what man will do, and then he reacts rather than acts. Our God is not a reactor. Our God is an actor. And so in this matter of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, it is God ultimately, ultimately the one who's hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, is Pharaoh still blameworthy for it? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Did Pharaoh want to harden his heart? Yes. Did Pharaoh desire to keep the, Egypt, or the Israelite slaves there? Yes. These were all totally in concert with his desire. All I'm saying is I give the greater and the final priority to God and his choosing. And I'm glad to do it. Now, I don't fully understand it. I don't even know in heaven I'll fully understand it. But this is what Romans 9 teaches. And I think it's time to begin to clear away the weeds of misunderstanding because I think they ultimately lead to a bad end. They lead to us putting man at the center, at the throne of the universe, and God more like the servant waiting to find out what we will decide and what we will do. And that's not what the scripture teaches. In the end, God raised Pharaoh up for a purpose, that he might display his power in him and that his name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build his kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.